we're just going to recommence uh, with our afternoon programme and uh, Father Edward will lead us in an opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, most sacred heart of Jesus, most sacred heart of Jesus, immaculate heart of Mary, we have the hymn now, Sweet Heart of Jesus, again that's in the centre of the, the middle of the booklets on the left hand side, and perhaps we could keep the, the tempo up a little bit this time, and perhaps sing it a bit more quickly than the, the previous hymns.
Well, we are very fortunate indeed to have secured the services of our first speaker this afternoon. Dr. Nancy Morris was educated at Bexhill County Grammar School for Girls and at St. Hilda's College, Oxford, where she read modern languages. She became a Catholic at the age of 24. After 20 years teaching in Catholic schools in various countries in Europe and in Canada, as well as missionary social work in Africa, she started her study of philosophy at the University of Bielefeld in Germany. From there, Dr. Morris transferred to the Sorbonne in Paris, where her studies focused on the works of St. Thomas Aquinas. Then, having obtained a licentiate in philosophy at the Gregorian University in Rome, she stayed on to teach at that prestigious university. We are delighted to have her with us here today. Will you welcome, please, Dr. Nancy Morris. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You wonder what this is? It's the first volume of the Summa Theologiae. I thought we'd have a visual aid here. Here he is. And this is the first part of the first part, of the first part and the first part of the second part. And I shall be talking about such things not very much. But um, I thought we'd just bring it. And this, I might say, I got from Haythrop College, which was throwing it out. Uh, so they were clearing out St. Thomas, and I got there just at the right moment, in about 1970 it was, or the 1970s, and managed to buy my volumes of St. Thomas. Now I'll start. Reverend Fathers, ladies and gentlemen, the Thomistic background to Catholic moral teaching. Now some people might query the very title of this speech. Surely they might say, the background to Catholic moral teaching is revelation contained in sacred scripture and tradition. That's, thus far they'd be right, but if they went on to ask, why then bring in St. Thomas Aquinas from outside, as it were, and ascribe the background to him? That would be a different matter. Thomas Aquinas was steeped in sacred scripture. He probably knew the whole Bible off by heart. It was a background of 90% of more of what he wrote. He wrote detailed commentaries on six books of the Old Testament and almost all the books of the New Testament, and I mean detailed. And a quotation from the Bible appears on almost every page of the Summa. There we are, you see, I see one from John there, and I just opened it at random. Not to mention what's on the opposite page. In most cases, he made, he made sure that nothing he wrote conflicted with biblical teaching, and in most case, cases he was consciously defending that teaching and explaining it. A Thomistic background to any realm of human thought or action is bound to be a biblical background as well. Now, as for tradition, if we situate ourselves in the, 20, in the 13th century when he wrote and lived, he represents tradition in its past, in its present, and in its future. In its past, 
because from the store of his vast learning he considered in his presentation of theology almost all that had been written before by Catholic writers. He represented tradition in its present because in his very activity of sitting there writing in the 13th century he himself was creating tradition creating part of the tradition of the church he treated with respect all former Catholic writers who had not been condemned by the church and he really treated with respect all former writers but he amended many and if he found in the Catholic writers that a development or amendment to their teaching was justified he proceeded to develop and amend it and so as he wrote he was transmitting amplifying and creating the tradition of the church now he also represented tradition as he sat there in the 13th century writing and teaching in the future he, he represented future traditions this is possible but I'm trying to point out that it is because his work would be increasingly accepted by the church although not immediately and for several centuries not officially older modes of thought would go on being defended and taught without Thomas's amendments such as those of St Augustine for instance and new ones would be accepted and defended such as those of Duns Scotus and William of Ockham the church did not officially reject these Thomism however remained always as a background to it all solidly defended by the Dominicans from the beginning you of course all know he was a Dominican and increasingly accepted by other orders such as the Jesuits and the Carmelites to read the works of St John of the Cross for instance is to see how entirely John of the Cross based his background teaching on St Thomas Thomas was becoming increasingly accepted until in the 19th century other, a new wave of philosophy threatened to engulf the church Cartesianism and had led to Kantianism that's Descartes and Kant which had flowered in the mankind worship of Hegel's teaching it was time for the church to speak and it did in 1879 scarcely two years into his long pontificate Leo XIII wrote his encyclical Eterni Patris in which he says with no ambiguity no beating about the bush that the Catholic philosopher par excellence is and should be Thomas Aquinas he first of all in his encyclical prefaces his praise of St. Thomas's thought by a fairly long introduction uh, of um, the fathers of the church and then philosophy of the church and then finally he shows how philosophy is necessary for the study of theology and then he shows how St Thomas resumes and surpasses all those thinkers that had gone before he says as clearly as can be said that in the works of St Thomas Aquinas we have Catholic philosophical tradition in its entirety Leo, first of all, quotes Cajetan, a cardinal, a Dominican cardinal of the turn from the 15th to the 16th century, and this is what Cajetan wrote of Thomas. He most venerated the ancient doctors of the church and in a certain way seems to have inherited the intellect of all. 
Leo then goes on, the doctrines, I am now quoting from the encyclical, the doctrines of those illustrious men, like the scattered members of a body, Thomas collected together and cemented, distributed in wonderful order, and so increased with important additions that he is rightly and deservedly esteemed the special bulwark and glory of the Catholic faith. In Thomas Aquinas, then, we have both sacred scripture and tradition. If we talk about his moral teaching we shall be talking about a teaching based on revelation contained in those two sources. The catechism which we have come together today to discuss mentions other authorities than Thomas, such as, firstly, of course, and primarily, sacred scripture, and then St. Augustine, St. Irenaeus, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Clement of Alexandria, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, and many others. But, in quoting them, the Catechism is quoting St. Thomas, for he embraced them all in his voluminous writings. St. Thomas Aquinas constitutes the background to Catholic moral teaching indisputably until 40 years ago and in a diffused way even today. So what then are the features of this background? In the material world, Thomas Aquinas sees an ascending order of complexity and excellence. Where life is concerned, he sees three levels the vegetative level, which are plants, the sensitive level, which are animals, and the rational level, which are, among the animals, human beings. Now, each level contains within it the lower levels. Plants have the powers of nutrition, growth, and reproduction. Animals have these three powers, plus the power of locomotion, and sensation. Human beings have all of these powers plus the power of reason. This means that if we want to talk about how human beings behave, or should behave, I should say, in other words, if we want to talk about morals, we shall have to take into account all these levels of the human makeup. Whatever plants and animals have Humans have also plus something added. In his moral theory, Thomas sees this something added, which is the power of reason, ratio in Latin, as the most important factor in his moral theory. Man is a rational animal. And in that word rational lies the nub of all Thomas's moral teaching. Virtue, for man, is the application of right reason to all his actions. Now, I say virtue for man, but you might say, well, what's all this about virtue for man? Surely only man can be virtuous. So that might need a little explaining. 
After all, we talk about cats and dogs as being a good boy or a good girl if they come when we call them or scratch on the door if they want to go out at the right time. But we don't say, oh, they're virtuous, do we? So we tend to think of only human beings as virtuous. And if we stick to this opinion, we shall feel puzzled sometimes when we find Thomas talking about the virtue of a cow or the virtue of a horse. Now, his definition of virtue was the perfection of a potentiality. That is his broadest definition of virtue in every sense. Now, behind this definition, behind this word virtue, which is virtus in Latin, stands a Greek word used by Aristotle, on which Thomas was, of course, basing most of his teaching or, uh, on the... Now, I have to be careful here. He was basing most of his teaching on morals as long as he was talking in the natural sphere. The supernatural is another matter. Behind this word virtue stands the word arete in Greek, which means the excellence of a thing, the perfection of a thing. If your tomato plant has grown up and is producing tomatoes, then it's a perfect tomato plant and it has achieved its arete, its excellence. Anything can have an excellence in that sense. As, for instance, a tomato plant, I've given you the, the um, idea, or we could say that a, a pig could have uh, an arete, he could be a perfect pig, or we could even say a cup of tea could have its arete. It's a perfect cup of tea. So behind this word virtus in Latin stands the word arete in Greek because the medieval Latin translators of, of Aristotle and of the Greeks translated this word arete with the word virtus in Latin. So behind it does stand a much wider meaning than the one that we now have. Now most of the time, in fact, uh, Thomas Aquinas is in fact talking about human virtue. He very often just says virtus without qualifying it and pointing out to us that he's talking about human virtue. Now when it comes to human virtue for human beings, Thomas distinguishes three main kinds. Intellectual virtues, moral virtues, I'm pointing to the heart, the will, and theological virtues. So there are three basic kinds of virtues that we could talk about. But before, we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here, talking too much about the virtues, because if we want to talk about his moral theory, we have first of all to talk about the passions. This is the basis of his moral theory. And the passions are, I could say the human passions, but really I should say the animal passions, because... Animal, we share our human passions with the animals. Passions are things that all animals have. They have a dual purpose. They depend on our bodies and they have a dual purpose. Firstly, to keep us alive individually and secondly, to keep our species or race alive. These two purposes of the passions apply to all of the animal world. The passions are orientated towards the good in any situation that will serve these two purposes or one of these two purposes they push us all caterpillars and rabbits and men and women towards food and drink and light and warmth to keep themselves alive and a suitable mate to keep the species alive conservation of the species and they repel us 
from anything that would prevent us from attaining these goals. And the passions are passive. You can see from the word that they're passive. They're things that happen to us. We can't choose to say, want that beautiful pear that's on the tree. You just want it. You can't say, I am now going to want that pear. No, I want it. They are passive, and they come from the Latin word, this word passive comes from the Latin word passus, which means having been acted upon or having suffered in the sense of having something happen to you. So passions are things that happen to us. Now, so traditionally, passions are passive. And without rationality and without will or volition, and in this tradition which stems from Aristotle, Thomas is firmly rooted. He makes an interesting division of the passions. He calls them the concupiscible or desiring passions and the irascible and angry passions. I think I should probably quite often say concupiscent instead of concupiscible because that one's so difficult to say. So if I say concupiscent, I really mean concupiscible. And the good, the bonum, is the object of all the passions. Now, we might think, we might imagine, that the object of the concupiscent passions, the desiring passions, is the good, and of the angry passions is the bad. But no, that's not the division he makes. The division he makes is that the concupiscent passions pull us towards the good with no problems, no hindrance, but the irascible passions come into play when there's some hindrance between us and the good. And this time I gave you an example. So let us take the example of a luscious Victoria plum which is ripe and beautiful on the plate in front of me. So first of all, I feel love for the plum, first passion, right? Then I desire it, second passion. Then I eat it and I feel joy, third passion. But supposing that plum was on a branch way above my head, then I would feel, first of all, love indeed, but also hope of getting it. And then I would go and I would, um, uh, having felt the hope of getting it, I would get the stepladder, and with great audacity, another passion, climb up it and reach for it and find it was still out of my reach and I would feel anger, another irascible passion. So there you see the hindrance that comes in. Now take another scenario. Some of you are probably thinking, Victoria Plum, plums make me ill. I'm allergic to them. All right, so let's take this scenario. You're allergic to plums. Plum in front of me, instead of feeling love, I feel hatred. Another passion, concupiscent. And having felt hatred, I go back from it. Flight, another passion, concupiscent. And having, perhaps I forget I'm allergic, take a bite out of it, and have a terrible allergic reaction, and I feel, instead of joy, sadness. Another passion. And supposing the plum on the tree... I have to read this one because I get a bit mixed up here. Let's get this straight now. Uh, So, I know from the outset, here we are, in the irascible scenario, I know from the outset that the plum is out of my reach. So I feel despair. Another passion. And 
so this is based on my fear of climbing the tree because the step ladder is not high enough I'll have to climb the tree so there is fear of falling out of the tree and of course the result is still going to be anger now that's a rather long story here two stories wasn't it four stories but it's just to show what the passions are and I've named them all All he names 11 passions divides them into concupiscent passions and irascible passions and I've given you an example of them all and please remember here that we are talking about sheer passivity these things are acting on me I, there is no rationality here there is no thinking there's no reasoning oh well that plum up there it's probably wasp eaten anyway and it's not worth it and I might break my neck none of that no that doesn't come into it that would be virtue and I would patiently go away with no anger then I would be virtuous but no so I'll just recap very quickly because he does actually list them at the end of his question on the passions we have then concupiscent passions, love and its opposite hatred, desire and its opposite flight, joy and its opposite sadness, six. And for the irascible passions we have hope and its opposite despair, we have fear and its opposite audacity, and we have anger which has no opposite. You've got the bad thing now and that's it. You might react against it and desire for revenge he, he defines anger so now when it's a question I think we have to have a drink of water here I'm not sure if that was a passion or a virtue that I was <laughs> anyway now <laughs> when it's a question of achieving their own good or self-preservation or the conservation of their species Animals do not, on the whole, misuse their passions because they have been given strong instincts to control their functioning. They do not, on the whole, desire things that are harmful for them or to fail to run away from things that are. By human cunning, they might be tricked. I, I'm thinking of slug pellets here, for instance, which I, I believe that slugs do find attractive. They feel love and desire and... <laughs> and then they feel sadness anyway um, but by nature without any extraneous rational input sorts things out by the interplay of sheer instinct of course everything dies in the end but then everything does die in the end doesn't it but somehow it keeps on going and although the individual dies the race doesn't die unless you've got human input like I believe importing pigs to Mauritius wasn't that got rid of the dodo wasn't it but there you are but you see it was human input the dodo would still be there if it hadn't been for that probably man however has a lower dose of instinct we've got it but much lower and not enough to keep us doing the right thing for self-preservation and preservation of the species but he has been given the power of reason reason in which the other animals do not share. Virtue for man, which is the perfection of his potentiality, must involve the use of his reason. Otherwise, he'll not become what he's meant to be. He will not perfect his potentiality. He will not achieve his goal or reach his fitting end, finem, as Thomas puts it. Now, this end for man 
can be either natural or supernatural. Within each category, natural or supernatural, it can either be of thought or of action. There's a type of virtue which corresponds to each of these divisions. To achieve the natural goal or the perfection of his intellect, man needs the intellectual virtues. To achieve the natural goal or the perfection of his actions, man needs the moral virtues. To achieve his supernatural goal, which is, says Thomas, his true goal, he needs the theological virtues, which govern both a man's thought and his actions. The theological virtues are the summit, of course they are, we all know that. Faith, hope and charity. But to continue our journey to the summit, we now need to look at the natural virtues in the two separate but connected areas of thought and action. In order adequately to define virtue, human virtue, Thomas uses a quotation from the sentences of Peter Lombard, which runs as follows. Virtue is a good quality of the mind by which one lives correctly and which no one uses badly, which God operates in us without us. Thomas accepts this definition, saying that it embraces perfectly the whole meaning of human virtue. He does, however, suggest one adjustment. He feels that the word habit would be better than quality, the word quality. So if we leave out, for the time being, the last clause, which God operates in us without us, and we use Thomas's suggested amendment, what we get is this. Virtue is a good habit of the mind by which one lives correctly and which no one uses badly. And the word habit is all important. By constant application of our reason to our actions and the, our passions, we build up a habit of such an application of our reason or the regulation of our passions by our reason. Reasoned and moderated behaviour then becomes habitual. If you can always pass the fish and chip shop, there's obviously one near where I live, isn't there? If you can always pass the fish and chip shop in spite of the wonderful smells that are coming out of it, one has probably acquired the habit of moderating one's desire for fatty food and one has therefore acquired the virtue of temperance in regard to food. Now I use their two words, acquired and moderating, which are all important when talking about the natural human virtues. They are acquired by constant practice and they consist in a moderation in keeping to the mean, to the middle way, the happy medium. If one resisted one's desire for food all the time, one wouldn't last very long. So you're not to eat too much and you're not to eat too little. You're to stand between bulimia and anorexia. Now, I've, uh, the virtue then is a habit of the mind. It says that in that, um, in that definition. This applies to the moral as well as to the intellectual virtues. We should see how this is so. Even though the moral virtues are seated in the will, not the intellect or mind as such, but if there are any great Thomists among you, which there probably are, you're probably saying, well, the will is in fact the intellectual appetite. Well, yes, it is. The intellect and the will are very closely connected. 
But the intellectual virtues, says Thomas, which are such, they can be either speculative, which are such habits as wisdom and knowledge and understanding, or they can be practical intellectual virtues, which he calls ours, which of course is what we would call skill, saddle making or, or horsemanship and so on. There's no model, moral virtue necessary here. You can be a very knowledgeable man without being a good man. You can be a very good saddle maker without being a good man. But there is one exception, and this exception is prudence. Now, prudence is de- defined as right thinking about what to do. Recta ratio agibilium. Right thinking about what to do. So it's an intellectual virtue, it's thinking, but it's about what to do, so it's also very closely connected to morals, actions. We could say it straddles the intellectual and the moral virtues. Now, escaping from the confines of that rather vague, the vague wording of that definition from Peter Lombard, that he took from Peter Lombard, who was the author of the sentences in the 12th century, Thomas gives one or two of his own virtues, of his own versions, getting mixed up here between versions and virtues, of a definition of moral virtue. He says, it's a certain habit perfecting man to acting well. Or, it is a human virtue which is an operative habit, is a good habit and operative of the good. Or a more complete definition which he takes from Aristotle is, Moral virtue is an elective habit consisting in the mean that determined by reason as a wise man will determine. And from these definitions we can glean that moral virtue is a habit. It's a habit that governs actions. It's a habit that chooses. It consists in choosing the mean and the the moderated balance between two opposing passions and it's a good habit and it's operative of good actions which means it's not only got to be a habit but it's got to act. This is moral virtue and from the fact that it exercises choice and it's a choosing habit we can see that it's in the will. It's in the will but it's governed by prudence the virtue of thinking correctly which is basically an intellectual virtue. Now, the exercise of prudence, however, depends on the will. But always finding this, it's always a two-way action. We, We choose correctly, we think correctly, in any passionate situation, if we want to. We can refuse to exercise our reason, refuse to think about the situation rationally, because we've already chosen to do the passion-governed act, whether it's deserting in the face of enemy fire in war, or finishing the box of chocolates, or stealing our friend's wife or husband. We've decided to do it, so we won't listen to reason. So prudence is also a moral virtue. What is more, it's the chief in the sense that it governs all the others of the moral virtues. 
It's in this way that all human virtue can be called a good habit of the mind through prudence, which in a sense is both an intellectual and moral virtue, the reason measures and governs all the other virtues. Now, there's a, you'll be asking, what are all these other virtues? There's a long list. There's no end to the list. He gives ten virtues which are mentioned by Aristotle. Uh, such as fortitude, temperance, liberality, greatness of soul, and so on. I won't give you the whole list. Uh, you, I'll give you the reference if you want it afterwards. And to this he adds justice. Thomas adds justice. He feels Aristotle forgot one, because he, in fact he did in that list, but he didn't elsewhere. And Thomas talks about piety, religion, chastity, abstinence. He mentions many different virtues. But in order to sort this unlimited list into some sort of manageable order, he, following Aristotle, identifies four main virtues to act as hinges on which to swing all the others, and these are the cardinal virtues, which some of you are now quickly saying, now what are they? Yes, right. Yes, what are they? They're temperance, which governs our concupiscent passions, their fortitude, which governs our irascible passions, their justice, which governs relationships between us and others, and prudence, the queen of virtues, which governs all the others by the application of right reason in all cases. Now, the moral virtues are closely connected together. Prudence has already connected them together by governing them all, but there are other reciprocal connections Firstly, because prudence and the, others, uh, and the others are connected in the opposite direction. One cannot be temperate or brave or just without being prudent, but one cannot be prudent without being temperate or brave or just. We are talking now, of course, of the perfection or consummation of the virtue. It's possible, says Thomas, to be, for example, liberal without being chaste. But he sees it, that this he, as he sees it, this is only an imperfect or inchoate, as he says, liberality. In the end, our unchastity, if it's not rectified, will impower, impair our liberality. Remember that liberality, I suppose we would say generosity, is a virtue. It consists in the mean, halfway between being a skinflint and being a spendthrift. And you see how many Victorian novels are written about the generous liberal man who then goes and spends all his patrimony on his mistress. See, the unchastity has impaired the liberality. No, says Thomas, to be perfect, the virtues must all exist together. They must be equally possessed for a man to be perfectly virtuous. Now, here's a metaphor I'm going to use. It couldn't be used by Thomas, you'll see, for obvious reasons. I think it could be seen as an umbrella. Prudence is the fabric of the umbrella, covering all the other virtues and keeping out the rain of the unbridled passions. But the spokes of the umbrella which hold up prudence are, in fact, fortitude and temperance and all the virtues connected with them. And then we might say, perhaps this is pushing it a bit, that the handle of the umbrella, which, connect, which it connects us to other people, well, it connects the umbrella to us, but take the umbrella as us and us as the other people, is justice. But it also holds up prudence, but 
There wouldn't be any point. It wouldn't be a handle at all if there wasn't an umbrella to hold up. So I think it could, perhaps, I'm not sure if that's a useful metaphor or not. Of course Thomas couldn't have used it because I don't believe umbrellas came to Europe before the 16th century. I think they came from China or somewhere. I believe the Egyptians knew them too, but the Europeans didn't. So to be perfectly virtuous, a man must possess, possess the virtues equally altogether. But that is not really true. Even if he possesses these moral virtues perfectly, a man is not yet perfectly virtuous in all senses of the word. Up to now, we have been talking of the acquired moral virtues. Good habits, the good habits that man acquires by practice, by always choosing the mean, by regulating his behaviour by right reason, until it becomes second nature to him. Second nature, yes. But is that all that man can be, natural? Has he only a natural destiny? Aristotle could talk only of the acquired moral virtues. Thomas was writing in the new dispensation when the doors of heaven had been opened to fallen but re repentant man. This man could not only know that he had... Wrong emphasis, start again. This man could not only know that he had a super, supernatural destiny, but he could also hope that it would become a reality for him. And so, in the end, experience this reality. He could believe in his supernatural end by faith. He could believe in it as being possible for him by hope and experience it in the union of charity. He could, in short, be infused with the theological virtues. These are what Peter Lombard meant by the last clause of his definition, which God operates in us without us. Now this is where things become difficult. If we want to see a clear pattern of ascent from the passions through the intellectual virtues to the moral virtues to be crowned by the theological virtues. If you have been seeing things like this, it's entirely my fault because this is the impression I have given. I have a neatly smooth progression upwards from our animal nature through our intellect, that is animal nature, passions, intellect, intellectual virtues, will, moral virtues, to culminate in the union of our soul with God in the theological virtues and really in the ultimate one, charity. Now, this is not what Thomas offers us. Although he makes it clear in the arguments or the objections which precede articles 2, 3 and 4 of the question 63 of the first part of the second part, which is where he talks about the virtues, he makes it clear from the objections or arguments that come before when he refutes them that this is what most people would think. 
that it's easy to map out the moral landscape in this way. But no, he says, in order that man may be prepared to receive the theological virtues as an infused gift of God, the acquired virtues are not enough. To reach his supernatural end, man first of all needs the infused intellectual virtues and the infused moral virtues. What we see here very clearly, of course, is the existence of two orders, two ways of being for mankind, the order of nature and the order of grace. In the order of nature, man has pre-existing in him fundamental principles which enable him to set out on his task of using his reason to moderate his passions in any situation. Thomas calls these seeds or principles of the he calls them seeds or principles of the acquired virtues. I'll just read the actual quotation there. There exist within us, according to nature, certain seeds or principles of the acquired virtues. These suffice, they are enough to set man out on the road to becoming virtuous according to his natural nature by constantly exercising his reason with the help of these seeds or principles of virtue. They will not, however, suffice to help him to become virtuous according to his supernatural calling. Nor will the fully acquired virtues help him in this once, once use of right reason in all circumstances has become a habit. I suppose what we should have then would be a perfect gentleman or a perfect lady in a Socratic or Aristotelian, Platonic or Stoic or even, if you like, uh, English public school sort of way. By nature, mankind is fully equipped to become virtuous in his natural life, but this cannot get him across into the supernatural life which is his real and final goal. For this, says Thomas, he needs infused virtues. They have the same names as the acquired virtues, but they are not the same. They differ in kind. They are of a different species, says Thomas. Different specie. Natural acquired temperance says here are the examples he gives natural acquired temperance says we must eat moderately supernatural infused temperance might tell us to abstain from food and drink in order to discipline our bodies natural acquired fortitude counsels against too much audacity in the face of insurmountable danger but supernatural infused fortitude can lead one to martyrdom so we see two lists of virtues acquired virtues and infused virtues with the same names an acquired wisdom and an infused wisdom an acquired knowledge and an infused knowledge an acquired fortitude and an infused fortitude and so on these infused virtues are the preparation for the theological virtues. They stand in the same relationship to faith, hope and charity as the natural seeds or principles of moral virtues stand to the acquired virtues. 
And, says Thomas, only the infused virtues can be said to be virtues in the fullest sense. The other virtues, namely the acquired virtues, are virtues in a qualified sense, not simply, for they order or direct man well in respect to an end in some particular area of human action, but not simply towards man's ultimate goal. The infused virtues order man towards his ultimate end. And what is this ultimate end? It's the union with God in charity. Charity is the peak and pinnacle of all virtues. It includes all the others. When charity is infused, all the other virtues are infused with it. So for Thomas, what is charity? How does he define it? His basic definition is that charity is love of man towards God. And he, he amplifies this. Charity signifies not only love of God, but also a certain friendship towards him, which over and above love adds a mutual loving in return with a certain communication. His language, as you notice, is very sober. But my goodness, the meaning. Huh? Now this is man's true goal, to love God. God is always loving man. It needs man to love God for this love to become mutual and so become true friendship, which Thomas defines as mutual benevolence. If man loves God, he wants what God wants. And what God wants is the good of all men. The man who loves God, who has charity, wants the good of all men also. In that is contained all of Christian morality. Man should love God before all else, and by truly loving God, love all other men also. The Old Testament is there, the New Testament is there, the Ten Commandments are there, all of Christ's teaching is there, and it is all there in St. Thomas. There's much, much more that Thomas says about morals. The whole of the second part of the second part of the Summa is devoted to a detailed examination of the different virtues. He was, after all, writing for the instruction of future clerics, future directors of souls. I have taken what I've said here from the introduction he gives to the passions and the virtues in the first part of the second part of the Summa. Even there, he says much more than I have been able to mention in this brief talk. There is no substitute for reading St. Thomas himself. And on that note, I shall give Leo XIII the last word. Towards the end of the encyclical, he writes, We exhort you, venerable brethren, in all earnestness to restore the golden wisdom of St. Thomas and to spread it far and wide for the defence and beauty of the Catholic faith for the good of society and for the advantage of all the sciences. Let carefully selected teachers endeavour to implant the doctrine of Thomas Aquinas in the minds of students 
and set forth clearly his solidity and excellence over others. Let the universities already founded or to be founded by you illustrate and defend this doctrine and use it for the refutation of prevailing errors. But lest the false for the true or the corrupt for the pure be drunk in, be ye watchful that the doctrine of Thomas be drawn from his own fountains. In saying this, Pope Leo XIII is telling us to go straight to the writings of St. Thomas himself and warns us against trusting interpreters. So, as an interpreter of St. Thomas, I think I had better now leave the lectern. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Morris. Um, Dr. Morris had the uh, ability there to be both entertaining and informative. Um, as far as the catechism is concerned, apart from hundreds and perhaps a, a thousand or so footnotes, there are in the index of citations no fewer than 60 direct citations to St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, um, in a moment we are going to have the Divine Mercy devotions and um, as you will have uh, spotted, I'm sure, uh, we have been joined on the platform now in preparation for the panel discussion. We've been joined by Father Robert Copsey. So, and... Uh, if I may just take this opportunity before I ask him to lead the Divine Mercy devotions, I'll just take this opportunity to introduce him formally. The Father Copsey studied for the priesthood in the United States. He was ordained on the 28th of May 1994. He is incarnated into the Diocese of Corpus Christi in America and he holds a Master of Divinity certificate. After six years in the United States, Father Copsey's first assignment in this country was to the Virgin Mother of Good Counsel Parish at Hythe in Kent. Subsequently, he served for seven years as parish priest at St. Mary Magdalene, Brockley, in south-east London. At the present time, he is awaiting a new assignment. So, we welcome him now and ask him if he will come to the uh, lectern and lead us in the Divine Mercy devotion. Thank you very much for that introduction, Mr. Chairman. The Divine Mercy Chapel is, is probably known to many, if not all of us here. We believe that our Blessed Lord appeared to Sister Faustina in the 1930s, more than once, and was asked to paint a picture of our Blessed Lord. We have a copy here in the front. And this um, Divine Mercy Chapel is a very powerful prayer, as you probably know. A prayer, if you read the memoirs of the Sister Faustina, her red book, we learn that this prayer, if said in the presence of somebody who is seriously ill in hospital or hospice, this prayer 
it will enable that person to be open to the graces of final repentance if they need to be and so we must um, take this very seriously the divine mercy chaplet even if we're not in the presence of a sick person we can still say according to sister Faustina's writings we can still say the, um, the prayer for a particular person who may be close to death in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, ascended to heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Eternal Father, I offer you the body and blood, soul and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of his sorrowful passion. 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 Eternal Father, I offer you. in atonement for his passions and those of the whole world. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. And have mercy on us and on the whole world. And have mercy on us and on the whole world. And have mercy on us and on the whole world. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. Eternal Father. I offer you the body and blood, soul and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. 
for the sake of his sorrowful passion 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 eternal father I offer you the body and blood soul and divinity of your dearly beloved son Lord Christ in atonement for our sins and for those of the whole world have mercy on us and on the whole world and have mercy on us and on the whole world and have mercy on us and on the whole world have mercy on us and on the whole world have mercy on us and on the whole world have mercy on us and on the whole world have mercy on us and on the whole world have mercy on us and on the whole world have mercy on us and on the whole world have mercy on us and on the whole world. Eternal Father, I offer you the body and blood, soul and divinity of your dearly beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. For the sake of his sorrowful passion, for the sake of his sorrowful passion, for the sake of his sorrowful passion, for the sake of his sorrowful passion 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 for the sake of his sorrowful passion. Holy God, Holy Mighty One, Holy Immortal One, have mercy on us and on the whole world. Holy God, Holy Mighty One, Holy Immortal One, have mercy on us and on the whole world. Holy God, Holy Mighty One, Holy Immortal One, have mercy on us and on the whole world. the three o'clock prayer you expire Jesus but the source of life gushed forth for souls and an ocean of mercy opened up for the whole world O fount of life unfathomable divine mercy envelop the whole world and empty yourself out upon us O blood and water which gushed forth from the heart of Jesus as a fount of mercy for us I trust in you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen. The CTS have a very nice booklet on Sister Forsina. 
very well worth reading and saying the divine chapter at three o'clock in the afternoon is a very, very good habit. Thank you very much, Father. Now, uh, also joining us on the platform now for our panel discussion is uh, Dom Alquin Reed, who is a Benedictine monk from St. Michael's Abbey in Farnborough. Uh, he will be speaking to us a little later this afternoon on the subject of prayer. So I can introduce him more fully at that point. <clears throat> 